My name is Rusty Mackey, and you're listening to The Art of Stability. Hey folks, and welcome back to The Art of Stability, where I have conversations with old and new friends to hear how they are navigating the challenges of life while staying grounded to Jesus in the midst of it all. On today's episode, I talk with Chuck DeGroote. Chuck happily quotes Augustine to say that what matters the most about him more than anything else in this life is that God is more near to me than I am to myself. But for the sake of Twitter bios and knowing a little bit more about the man himself, Chuck and his wife, Sarah, are newly minted empty nesters with two grown daughters. He's a professor, therapist, spiritual director. He's an author of some pretty phenomenal books, in my opinion, and he's a speaker. Chuck is a kind and generous man, and you are going to enjoy something in today's episode that covers our shadow side, self-compassion, and how Jesus heals our trauma. Stay with us and enjoy Mind Castles with Chuck DeGroote. From the moment I began to interact with your with you, with your books to begin with. And then uh, from the times that I've been able to interact with you in person, one of the things that has been very clear to me that I value about you is your compassion. Uh, You just, in in your books on uh, social media, which is a place that often doesn't have compassion, (laughs) you know, Chuck shows up and, and he has compassion. I'm curious the story behind that. Have you always been a person that's drawn towards compassion? What's what's been the development in your life with that? Yeah, you know, I mean, I I think the honest answer to that question is compassion probably began in codependency, people pleasing, mm-hmm. and um, and and a story of having to show up in the midst of disruption and chaos mm-hmm. in my home in a way that was helpful. Um, that mitigated some of some of the, the chaos that we experienced. Um, I, I, I'm the old classic oldest child, right? So I played that role. Um, now the flip side of that is that people like me who, who grew up in that kind of um, environment where I'm, I have to kind of take care of things, I've got to be more mature than I really am, I'm parentified, stuff like that. There's a shadow side and there's yeah. quiet rage, there's grief, there's shame. And so, and so uh, I, I had to reckon with that pretty early on. It was in seminary that I had to reckon with those two sides of my story. On the one side, um, a guy who's in seminary who looks and dresses the part, um, people-pleasing, codependent, um, nice guy, filled with rage and shame and sadness mm. and anxiety, yeah. riddled with it. Let's just also add riddled with anxiety to that mix. <laughs> so, that's a good cocktail. Yeah, that's that's a that's a cocktail that my professor at the time, Gary Rupp, the professor of counseling back in the day, uh, said to me would be dangerous for the church if I didn't do my own inner work. And so that began uh, in earnest in the fall of 1997. Wow. So from 1997 then to today, you know, you mentioned the shadow side of the compassion, right? Yes. What has been the biggest factors in helping you move from the shadow side into that actually being a gift of who you are? Yeah. I mean, I think 
I think that uh, when we think about compassion, even the root of the word, I think it's to suffer with, right? I mean, I had to, um, I was suffering, but I, I had to learn, um, uh, I had to learn something about my suffering. I had to descend down into my suffering. That's a good Enneagram 4 thing to say, by the way. Um, I had to befriend my suffering. I, I had to see Jesus at the very center of it, right? The one who suffers with, suffers for. Um, I had to uh, experience the transformation of my own sufferings um, as, as one who grew up in a home that was rather chaotic and, and painful at times. Um, and that, that was a process, but that the transformation uh, emerges in compassion, um, the capacity to, um, I think, uh, befriend myself and befriend others in a way that emerges from a place of, of um, being with. I, I don't think I was capable of that in seminary. I think Gary was right. If, if I was to go out and be a pastor at the time, I would have been dangerous because I had not I'd not reckoned with my own sufferings at that point. Um, hmm. And so uh, I would have inflicted suffering. Um, you and I think you quoted Rohr. We, we both quoted Richard Rohr at times. If you don't hmm. transform your pain, you're bound to transmit it, right? You're bound yeah. to inflict it on others, project it into the world. And I think I would have, and I think I do, and I have done that over the years to be sure. But I think at least back in the day, uh, I I began to deal with um, the reality of, of my story of, of pain and my inner experience of trauma. And that's, that's led me. I think when you do that kind of inner work, uh, you, there's a compassion that grows not only for yourself and your own story, but for the stories of others. And I don't think I would have been able to get there if it wasn't for Gary's compassion for me um, in naming some really honest things about how I was showing up arrogance my pain and how my pain was coming out sideways in all different kinds of spaces. I don't think I would have gotten there without the honesty of another. I love how you pointed out, you know, that your compassion started almost as this coping mechanism mm -hmm. and, but yet it wasn't really true compassion. It was suffering. You said it was suffering, but it wasn't suffering with. And the, the first step in that was learning how to suffer with your own story. Uh, learning how to befriend yourself, learning how to allow Jesus to show you that compassion and that inward journey then has moved you uh, towards an outward journey. And, you know, I'll just say on behalf of myself and so many others, uh, thank you for your compassion and your care, uh, because we, we need more people like that in our chaotic world that we live in. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. And, and I think the, the remarkable thing about the gospel, right, is that Jesus meets us um, in our pain, at the very center yeah. of our pain. Jesus isn't just like this, this guy that's standing above us. Uh, we're in the pit and he's standing above us as, as this champion, like, come on, you can do it. You know, <laughs> Jesus isn't a divine cheerleader. Jesus actually uh, is acquainted with suffering, right? Meets us in our in our suffering and our grief. And I I don't think, you know, people talk about a relationship with Jesus or knowing God, but I, I don't know that we can really uh, deeply and intimately know God uh, without meeting God in the midst of our sufferings, right? Yeah. That's so very important for the journey of transformation, the work that you do as a spiritual director, uh, walking with people into those places of darkness and suffering. Yeah. So easy to bypass that pain. Uh, try to numb it, try to avoid it. Uh, with that in mind, 
Can you share with us a story of a time where you've experienced some instability and and how you sought to navigate that? Yeah. Well, when you asked me to do this, I I wondered what story I would share. I really wondered what story I'd be courageous enough to share. <laughs> um, and and Rusty, this isn't a story that I talk about often, but I'll t- I'll tell you a bit of the story, and uh, I think because I suspect that you and your audience, um, knowing you will be pastors and parishioners who long for honesty and, uh, and for courage as well. Um, for me, at least one moment of profound disruption goes back to the fall of 2003. Um, I'd been a pastor for six years in a, in an Orlando church. I was a pastor of spiritual formation. I'd started a counseling center, um, you like this. I started a ministry uh, within that church, um, a, a church service. We, those of us who are Gen Xers in the late 1990s, uh, really thought that we we knew how to do church better than the Boomers, and so we were creating these alternative <laughs> worship services that were dark, candles and couches and symbols and art sacraments. Yeah, and, yeah. And uh, I called it Sojourn of all things. <laughs> Uh, Did you really? Oh yeah, yeah. I pastored <laughs> a community called Sojourn for for uh, for about five years, and so <laughs> I planted this church within a church, and that led to us. Uh, I, I think what what might be called an inevitable um, friction and distrust between me and the senior pastor at the time, um, and. I don't want to paint this as a, uh, you know, I, I'm the hero of the story and he's the villain of the story because um, characters in scripture and characters in life are much more complex than that. Right. Yes. Um, but he called me into his office in the fall of 2003 and, and said, uh, I think, I think you should probably take this community and um, plant it somewhere else. Um, I don't, I don't think you and I can coexist within this community anymore as pastors. It was a much bigger conversation than that, but I responded very reactively. Um, mm-hmm. And I called him some things that I won't say here. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it led to me being fired. Uh, I was called, called in by the elders that Sunday. And, and the elders were uh, both gracious and harsh at the same time, if that makes sense. We love you. Yeah. We appreciated your ministry here, but it doesn't look like the two of you can coexist. And so we're going to let you go, Chuck. Um, and so uh, I was, uh, I had, I had actually turned down another job somewhere else to be a senior pastor of a community on the coast of Florida to stay longer uh, in the spirit of Eugene wow. Peterson's long obedience in the same direction. Yes. yes. Um, I had stepped away actually from pastoring that sojourn community because I had felt like um, it was causing friction between me and the senior pastor. And I'd asked mm-hmm. him to pastor that community. I thought I'd done all the things that I was supposed to do uh, mm-hmm. as, a, as a young pastor to, to remain and to be humble as an associate pastor in, in a setting like that. And, uh, and within a matter of a few days, I was out of the job. And there were massive questions. I mean, people were wondering, was there moral failure? Why was, why was Chuck teaching a course in the book of Revelation one Sunday in the adult ed class and gone the next Sunday uh, yeah. with barely an announcement in the bulletin? And, and uh, we had two kids under two years old. We had just put a down payment on a new home build. 
uh, and uh, they were offering a meager severance package that I that I quickly pushed back on and renegotiated. But it was an incredibly disruptive, incredibly painful moment, and um, we could talk a little bit more about it. But I'll say this, just by way of a teaser. I didn't fully reckon with what happened that day for another seven or eight years. Uh, and uh, even as a therapist, even as one familiar with stories of pain and suffering, entering into those stories with others, I didn't do my own work. I didn't really fully enter into the, the trauma that that caused for another seven or eight years. Well, first, thank you for your honesty and greatly value uh, you being willing to share uh, a really painful story. Yeah, with that teaser that you teed up, when you think back on that time, were you like purposefully not doing your work? Mm-hmm. Or what was that experience like? Like you, you knew what you needed to be doing. What was the disconnect? Yeah, I think as I as I've reflected back on what happened there, there was kind of the, the immediate aftermath of, of the massive disruption of, of our life, vocation, relationships, community, church, yeah. uh, the preschool where my kids went. And so there was just um, disruption, dislocation, uh, disorientation that left me spinning. And so that, you know, in the immediate aftermath, you're just trying to survive. You know, you, your, yeah. your autonomic nervous system goes haywire at that point. And, um, and I'm vacillating between fight or flight at any given moment. Yeah. Uh, but in the days and weeks after, what I noticed was that there were, there were some responses from people in my life that weren't particularly helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them was to simply villainize the pastor who fired me um, and paint me as a victim, which I, I think felt really good uh, at one level but it didn't invite any inner work. It simply just scapegoated someone. Um, and I think the other one was there are people in my life who uh, I was a pastor and pastors. I was a pastor and a therapist who had some status in a community uh, and who people thought was pretty put together. And I think people just kind of thought he's going to be okay. That's Chuck. He'll be just fine. And so uh, even mentors in my life just didn't check on me. Um, and I look back on that. And I didn't ask to be checked on either. And I, that goes back to my story too much to get into right now. Um, but there's, there's some, at least a piece of my story is a story of some neglect and abandonment emotionally. And, and so I just kind of learned to keep on keeping on yeah. <laughs> without a whole lot of care. Um, and so it was when I looked for care back in 2009, 2010, seven years later, and begin doing my work that, that I started to realize, wow, Chuck, you are hurting and you're hurting bad. And um, you survived over these last seven years, but you're not really thriving. It's interesting how you, the connection between not doing your own work and the connection between asking for care. And it was when you asked for care that you began to do your own work. If you could yeah, I mean, yeah, there's really two ways to ask this question. You know, what would you have wanted a friend to say during that time? Uh, I think the other question that I'll probably actually go with, though, is uh, if you could go back now mm. at your age and talk to yourself then, knowing what you know now, 
Oh yeah. What would you share with yourself? Yeah. You know, I mean, so I have in, in, in some of the work that I've done and when I greet that young guy, I mean, I'm 33 at the time I'm 51 now, right. When I greet him, um, I think going back to the start of our conversation, that's where I find immense compassion. Um, my capacity to be compassionate for myself has allowed me in growing ways to be compassionate for others. And so I look at that guy and I say, you must be so scared. Um, you must feel so crazy and so ashamed. You know, I'm here. It's okay. I see you. Jesus sees you. Um, Jesus stands right at the center of your pain. Um, you're, you're not alone. Um, and you don't have to be afraid. We're right here with you. I think, I think that, um, you know, when we talk about trauma, trauma is not what happens to us. It's what happens within us in the absence of a compassionate witness. Um, and I, I go back, uh, to be the compassionate witness to my story, um, uh, in a way that just didn't happen at the time. Right. I needed someone to say, ouch, that hurt. That was unfair. That was unjust. This stinks. I'm so sorry. You must be so scared. Um, Sarah must be so scared. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I'd, I'd go and I'd wrap my arms around that, that young pastor and I'd say, I love you. I see you. You, you, were, you were hurt. Um, and you, you also contributed to, to some of the pain that led you to this place. And we'll work through it in time. But right now, I just want you to know I'm there. Trauma is not what happens to us. Is mm -hmm. what happens within us right. when we lack compassionate witness. Mm -hmm. That is, that's tweetable right there. <laughs> right there. Oh yeah, that, that's, not, <laughs> that's not me. That's that's Bessel van der Kolk. That's Gabor Mate. That's you know the great trauma theorists of our day um, say that over and over again. So I'm just echoing the thoughts of others. Yeah. Well, as you were sharing, you know what you would share with your with your younger self and what you have, uh, just the, the scripture, uh, of, of the great love commandment, you know, love Lord, your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That love your neighbor as yourself just came to mind as you were sharing that and just thinking, yeah, that is, that is how we should love ourselves in the same way that Jesus uh, would love us. So thank you for sharing. Uh, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Chuck, what's going on with you now? What what are what are some ways in this moment? I mean, we're kind of in chaotic times uh, with our world, you know. So there's no there, there's no lack of instability uh, around us. What are some things that you're practically doing to enjoy Jesus, to stay grounded in Jesus? What's helping you right now? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I think uh, I'm I'm far from. Uh, there yet right i mean the the journey continues on and uh but i did notice <clears throat> at the beginning of covid19 when so many of us were disrupted and disoriented i had some practices that uh i learned that were in me um that that uh you know when you do things over and over and over again you rewire your brain you know they were just there mm -hmm. um it's like getting on a bike i, I can breathe right now i can find my way to 20 minutes of silence. I could go out, take a walk. Um, yeah. I, I think at the beginning of COVID-19, which by the way, corresponded with the release of, of my book on narcissism in the church, <laughs> yeah. but talk about writing about a 
you know, a ministry epidemic during a global pandemic, right? And um, when there was a whole lot of disruption of my schedule, um, things that I, places I was supposed to be, events that I was supposed to, you know, it was massively disruptive and inconvenient uh, and and uh, really just sabotage my own agenda for the release of a book. And, and uh, I think in the midst of that, I, there was a moment, there was a moment in the beginning where I was like, this ain't going to go so well. <laughs> but I think <laughs> within the court, I think probably two or three, four weeks in, I found that my body was finding its way to some of the old rhythms, even without my conscious intent, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It was just sort of like, Chuck, you're, you're getting worked up again. You're beginning to spin the hurricane winds. You become a category three. It's growing to a four. Um, let's get back to the quiet eye of the storm where Jesus is. Let's mm-hmm. breathe. Let's rest. And so I began to find my way to that, that chair back there where I'd sit <laughs> on quiet mornings and I'd breathe. Uh, I'd use my calm app and I'd do a long body scan. I'd, uh, I'd, I do my, my daily prayer, um, uh, whatever form that would take, I practice silence and solitude. I just found my way back to center. Um, and, and I hit repeat on that and it became a kind of anchoring practice. Uh, I get out because so many, many of us were sedentary at the time. I get out and take walks where I just experience um, the nearness of, of Jesus on those walks. Um, it's just sort of like, hey, let's go on a walk. Yeah, that, that sounds like fun. And God and I would just sort of chat about where we wanted to walk and what we wanted to talk about. And that that became, for me, a really centering time. Um, people were looking to me to help center them in that time. I mean, there's so many of us who are spiritual directors and therapists who got, you know, our, our emails and um, direct messages and phones lit up during that time, continue to light up with so many who are disrupted, right? But it it meant for me um, answering the question that I often ask others to answer. And that's that Genesis three question, where are you? Mm. And um, recognizing that um, God wants to meet me again, to come full circle right where I am, um, even in my unrest, um, disquieted soul, my anxiety, my shame. I have so many questions from what you just shared. The <laughs> and I'm not going to ask them all. Uh, I promise. The first is, when you have that question of, you know, the Genesis three, God saying like, where are you, Chuck? Mm-hmm. What is God's tone like? How are you experiencing God mm-hmm. asking that question? Yeah. So um, I think in the Christian tradition, there are so many different resources, but uh, in the last two, 300 years, um, because of historical and theological dynamics that we don't have time to get into. Yeah. We can become so cognitive in our orientation, so logical, so left brain. Uh-huh. Um, so I found my way to imagery. And, and one of the images I, I have is um, of, a, of a grand sort of Scottish castle. And it sounds a little bit like St. Teresa of Avila's uh, The Interior Castle here. Yeah. But I imagine myself ascending the castle steps um, to enter in through this great door um, to the really kind and compassionate face of Jesus um, saying, come, it's okay. It's safe in here. That's my safe place. That's God's, that's, that's the, uh, that's God's, where are you at that moment? God's invitation to, to, um, to pay attention to 
how I've got lost, where I've been, how I've met my own needs, um, my idolatry, my addictions, my attachments, all yeah. the above, right? And to simply rest in God. And, and that image for me, that, that's, that spacious castle imagery is of a place of rest. It's of a place of quiet. It's a, of a place of union and communion, delight, mm-hmm. um, where I'm held. Uh, so I, I, no one knows it, right? You may not even know it, but I, I can be on a call with someone. I can be doing counseling. I can, uh, no matter what it is, I can find my way up into that room, into a place of rest and quiet again. So it's a good, safe and spacious place. It makes me wonder how many people when asking that question would imagine God having a scalding tone, you know, especially with the context of where it came, you know, Adam is hiding and he's in shame. Uh, And I love how you didn't go there. That's not where, that's not where your heart and mind goes. Your heart and mind goes to uh, my loving, compassionate Jesus is inviting me. It it reminded me of Alison Cook once uh, said, he's authoritative. Yes, but he's always invitational. And that's just, I think where we all need to get is that place of being able to acknowledge, yeah, he's my authority. He's King, but he's never shaming. He's never scalding. He's never, he's bringing that compassion as he's asking us questions. Yeah. I mean, I think I would say the gospel begins in Genesis three, right? Um, It's, it's God uh, seeing us knowing that we're in our very first exile. You know, we've grasped of the fruit um, and we're now in our self-imposed exile, naked and ashamed. I I can imagine the, the autonomic nervous systems of Adam and Eve um, as they hear the rustling and the cool of the day, you know, God walking through the garden, what's he going to say? What's he going to do? Where can we hide? And being, um, so incredibly surprised, uh, by, by God's kindness. Where are you? You know, I, I miss you. It's sort of like, it was so good. We were enjoying each other so much. Wasn't it beautiful when we were together? Where are you? Where have you gone? I mean, it's, it's, it's kind, it's generous, it's also heartbroken, you know, and I, I think, um, I think someone with true power, um, has the capacity to offer compassion. Someone with deep security and true power has the capacity to offer compassion. It's, uh, I, I think we talk a lot about power today, especially in conversations about narcissism and abuse and things like that. And I often say the problem isn't power. It's just that Jesus did, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or exploited, but became nothing, became a servant, became humble, right? So it's not an abdication of power. It's, it's a power that uh, allows for immense compassion um, because we can move toward in our power. It's a power to bless, not to coerce, right? Yes, yes. You've mentioned several times uh, the, the autonomic nervous system. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll say the first time you ever asked me the question of like, what does that feel like in your body? You know, it's like, well, no one's ever asked me that question before. <laughs> Can you speak to, especially as we're thinking about kind of realigning our experience in life with our experience with God as this loving, compassionate father that you're talking about? Why is it helpful for us to pay attention to body sensations yeah. in these moments of instability? 
Yeah. Yeah, because we're embodied creatures, right? Um, we are nefesh in Hebrew, embodied souls and soul bodies. When I think about trauma, what happens in our bodies um, in very physiological, physical, physiological, neurobiological kinds of ways, um, I, I, I think that that happens. I mentioned earlier trauma happens in the context, uh, in the absence of a compassionate witness, it's because it, it's our, our body's survival state. Trauma is our way of surviving uh, the brokenness of the world. Uh, Genesis 3 to Revelation chapter 20, you know, it's mm. um, God has created us in, in such a way to survive um, in, in some case, very harsh conditions, right? If you think about sort of the evolution of, I mean, not all of us have the comfort of four walls and a carpet and a, um, air conditioning on a hot day and things like that, right? So we've learned to survive. Our, we've got this very sophisticated autonomic nervous system that allows us to, to fight and to flee, um, to freeze um, in order to protect us from, um, from, from, impending harm. Now, the cool thing is that there's this refrain in scripture over and over and over again, do not fear for I am with you. Yeah. Some form of that over and over and over again. In other words, of course you're anxious. You've been surviving on your own, but I'm here now. And so you can relax. Um, that, that's the compassionate witness of a God who says in my arms, you no longer have to be afraid. Imagine a child who's sort of wandering around, mommy, 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 mommy. Mom comes into the room and picks him up and he's, ah, I feel better now. It's okay. I'm safe now. I, I think I think that uh, in a sense, the answer to trauma is, is empathy. It's safety. It's compassion. It's being held, being seen, being known. In those ways, we can relax. Our body can come back to a, a kind of normalized, uh, state, um, and we can experience connection again. Yeah. Well, thank you for the ways that you have, uh, embodied a presence with others that, uh, helps them to be seen. You've, you've been a compassionate observer for many, and I'm just grateful for you and for your friendship, for your mentorship and for your ministry. Well, Rusty, I feel the same. I'm, I'm grateful for your pastoral ministry, your new ministry of podcasting and spiritual direction and teaching and resourcing the church out of your out of your own beauty and your own brokenness, right? Because there's no other way. So thanks for cultivating conversations where we can be honest. All right, folks, thanks for joining us today for the Art of Stability. If you want to keep up with Chuck, find him on Twitter, Instagram, and the Facebook under the handle at Chuck DeGroat. Also, frequent Chuck's website to find future projects like a video series on St. Teresa of Avila's The Interior Castle, as well as a forthcoming book on what Chuck calls the deep work of transformation, helping us to understand the nine movements of that process. Check out the show notes for these links and more. The Artist Ability is a production of Steadfast Ministries. There I offer spiritual direction, sabbatical coaching, and workshops, which all help you stay grounded in Christ to go the distance in life and work. For these and other free resources to help you grow in emotional and spiritual health, be sure to check out Steadfast Ministries' website at steadfastmin.com. That is steadfastmin.com. The Art of Stability cover art was created by Brian Bim, music created and performed by Rob Main, and the music was recorded and produced by The Asterisk Company. 
Help this brand new podcast continue to find its audience by subscribing and sharing it with friends today so that more folks can join us next time for the art of stability.